Well, good morning. My name is Aaron Stritzel. Welcome to The Well here this morning. It's great to be with you virtually. As you can see, my head's on a screen, so I'm not there in person this week. Uh, but we're going to continue on the sermon series, Vintage Jesus, Spotting the Authentic Jesus in a World of Newly Invented Fakes. Today, we're really going to talk about sort of this idea of Jesus as a sort of nice guy. Um, we're going to jump in our text early on today, come back to it. The text comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, and it says this, Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I've been looking at the uh, fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should I be wasting soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. See, I want to talk as we begin about my own views of Jesus and how those have kind of shifted through the years. I, I was raised in a Christian home. I taught really from early on about Jesus as a sort of loving Savior, but a Jesus that cared mostly for our eternal souls. Really, the question was, where were you going to go when you die? I still remember um, taking part in Awanas. Uh, if you're not familiar with Awanas, it's sort of like this little, uh, I think it's Baptist for kids. You wear these little red vests and you get these little patches for it. I loved it. It was great. And I still remember the first patch I got from memorizing John 3:16, which goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And for whatever reason, I don't know if I was taught on, about this or I picked this up, but I focused on the second part of that. So whoever believes in me shall not perish. And over time, it became clear that our very um, eternal souls are based upon what we believe about Jesus. So you better get it right. And then the whole goal was to make sure everybody else gets it right. See, Jesus was loving, but sort of exclusive and also focused on right beliefs, correct doctrines. That was the key. Perhaps you can relate to this image of Jesus. But over time, I developed critical thinking and, you know, started shifting some of my worldviews and it's like, man, Jesus seems far more loving and inclusive than I was always taught. In fact, he seems to always be erasing the lines of who's in and who's out and challenging the norms and embracing people on the margins. And that kind of shifted to what I would call from a conservative Jesus to a sort of liberal hippie Jesus. Like this image here, Jesus was sort of everyone's BFF. Like, hey, how you doing? What's happening? Right? Jesus was this, I mean, I just think of him sitting around a campfire, literally in his sandals, uh, long hair, because that's how I imagine Jesus, and singing Kumbaya and around a campfire, uh, just chilling, just relaxing. And I focused on the inclusivity and the love of Jesus. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. That's the part I focused on of John three sixteen. God's love. God was love. And that's the part I really essentially um, highlighted and neglected the other part almost completely. But over time, things began to shift. I began to wrestle with certain questions. If Jesus was all about love and peace, what did he think about evil, violence, and greed? And then texts began to come up and people began to ask, well, if Jesus is like this sort of loving, compassionate person, well, he sure got angry at the temple, right? He flipped tables. He kind of created this whip and drove people out of the temple. 
And then I came in contact with texts that kind of confronted this. Text says this one where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. This confronts this idea that Jesus is sort of this hippie, nice, loving liberal who just welcomes all. But, as he says here, I have not come just to bring peace. In essence, began as I dove into that, realized, oh, Jesus' message kind of does divide, but in a different way than I had originally thought. It's a, it's a deeper, more complex way where, first of all, Jesus isn't so focused on our eternal salvation. Neither is Jesus just this nice hippie guy. Jesus was clearly teaching a way and inviting people into that. And here the text even talks about how it will bring a sword, it will cause division, sometimes even among families. Or other texts like this, serpents, you brood of vipers. Jesus is calling out the religious leaders, calling them names. Or another text here in Matthew 7, 6, where he says people are dogs. Don't give dogs what is holy. Do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. These kinds of texts became up where, well, Jesus wasn't just this nice-go-lucky, lackadaisical person. In fact, his message was so harsh that it got him killed, right? So how do we understand Jesus? What's interesting, along when I began to wrestle with this, well, Jesus isn't just this nice, hippie guy. There was this other theme emerging. Between 2000 and 2010, there was this movement among, I would say, more evangelical conservatives of Jesus as a sort of masculine Jesus. So almost like you see in this image here, Jesus is, uh, you could call this tough guy Jesus. That drawing from the gospel, or not the gospel, the book of Revelations, Jesus was going to someday come back, kick butt, take names, slash around his sword, and kill hundreds of thousands. The idea being, well, don't think Jesus is this nice, meek hippie. Jesus is this sort of kick-butt guy. It's interesting to know a little bit of that history. I'm not going to dive in, but if you're interested in understanding the the sort of complexity of this sort of tough guy Jesus, there's a great resource written by a scholar, Kristen, I don't know if I'm getting her name right, um, Coves de Mez, who published a book in 2020 titled Jesus and John Wayne. So who is Jesus really? I want to come back to that here in a bit. But before we examine this a little bit more deeply, also, I want to acknowledge the fact that no matter what you view of Jesus, who you are, your view of Jesus and how you understand Jesus, just like God, just like your faith, evolves and changes over time. Perhaps you can relate to some of my views of Jesus, and perhaps you had different views or would maybe label them differently. But perhaps you had a specific view of Jesus early on who was exclusive, harsh on anybody who didn't believe exactly like you believed, and then you bumped into several people who didn't have those beliefs but were super loving, compassionate, and perhaps more full of grace than those who were supposedly on the inside who believed the right things and caused some dissonance of like, wait, what's going on? Or perhaps you had a view uh, of Jesus who was quick to condemn people of who are attracted to same-sex relational partners. And for you, it was super clear. You've always been taught this, but now your son or your daughter or your friend or somebody you knew came out and it sort of 
messed with that overly simplistic black and white binary view and caused some nuance, brought some nuance. Perhaps you read books or studied on how the Gospels were written or the Gospels were written in Greek. Jesus primarily spoke Aramaic and they translated it and most of the Gospels were written decades after the death of Jesus, how they don't all align perfectly. They tell different stories. They highlight different themes. They talk in different languages because it's based on their audience and who they were trying to reach. And it caused a little dissonance and, and a little more nuance and maybe at times some frustration as you struggle to understand who Jesus was. All this to say is I think this is a normal part of human faith development. As we change, we evolve, we grow. And I will say this, what, what I believe is that in the early stages of faith, things seem more black and white. They seem more formulaic and simplistic. But as we mature, our faith becomes more nuanced, layered, and complex. And this includes how we view and understand Jesus. Think of this in light of a, a person individually. You're not the same person you were when you were six or seven. Your view of the world was far more simplistic, far more black and white, far more formulaic because you developed, you grew, you changed. If you have that same view and you're 40, there is a problem. But it's not wrong for somebody who's six and seven to have those things. See, here's what I think is really getting at the heart of what's happening in our world is we have a whole lot of people who are moving to higher stages of faith. They're wrestling with things. They're asking questions. Things are more nuanced. They're not as black and white. And that causes some dissonance. Dissonance internally and for other people, it causes some friction because they think those people who are wrestling are more nuanced or questioning things are losing their faith. Sometimes, if we're honest, it feels like we are when we're walking through those questions. It, it, it's because we're handed something that's in many ways immature. And that was good. When you're six or seven, your view of God or the world is immature. You can only handle so much. But as people are growing up and maturing, we have less and less guides helping us and more and more people worried about their salvation. Do you believe the right things? And here's what I believe. Nothing to fear. That faith is about exploring and understanding and growing and it's okay to ask those questions it's okay to admit my faith used to be one way now I think differently in fact that's good that's part of growing up but knowing this as well that it's gonna cause some dissonance it's as Jesus said gonna cause some division and that's part of it I, I was talking to a good friend who I huge respect a mentor in my life that was basically like I sometimes struggle and why people find questions and certain things threatening and it just hit me like oh from that perspective when somebody begins to grow and their faith is more nuanced it is threatening because they sort of built this wall up and you take too many bricks and the whole thing starts to shake and wobble and that's threatening when your faith is basically like a wall right I love uh, um, Rob Bell's uh, image and he speaks about this in, in Velvet Elvis is one of his first books it probably is his first book actually I still remember reading it uh, twice but he talks about faith not like a wall that we have to prop up but like a trampoline that we get to spring and enjoy and bounce and just that little image shift of like oh yeah this is actually how I was taught and why I myself struggle 
sometimes because it feels wobbly. But you know what? I get to enjoy this. In fact, what I believe is that learning to live into the questions of faith and allow room for nuance and mystery is part of what it means to become a more mature person of faith. We live into the questions. And actually, the people that I hold as sort of elders and mature men, women, folks of faith are people who are super humble, who aren't there ready, quick to give answers, but who are there that have the sort of wisdom of, I've experienced a lot of things in my life. I, I used to think things were more simplistic, and now they're very nuanced. And it might look a little bit different based on your life. So let's learn here together. I think that's what it means to be a person of mature faith. So back to Jesus. The Hebrew Bible, they, they talk a lot about these two religious groups that began to emerge, the priests and the prophets. And the priests were primarily the descendants of Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, who were there to take care of the temple to make sure the worship and the sacrificial system was on par, that people had access to it, that they were able to worship God and continue this uh, um, tradition. But prophets began to emerge that kind of called people out, that called people back, that repentance was a big word, called people to repent, to, to turn, that somehow they continued to get off course, like you and I, we tend to do from time to time, right? We're let off course by our own selfishness or greed or just desire. I don't think that's always like malintent, like we have bad intentions. We just tend to get off course. And prophets were those that were calling people back on. And I've come to wonder this. I wonder if conservatives tend to emphasize the, the priesthood of Jesus, that Jesus is this priest, that he kind of took our place, right? And that we are to worship and to follow. And I wonder if more liberals and progressives tend to emphasize the prophetic message of Jesus. But here's the reality. Jesus was in many ways a both and and actually, there's a book I have over here called The Wisdom Jesus, where author uh, Reverend Cynthia Bourgeau argues Jesus was actually, in many ways, neither of those, or kind of encompasses both, but also was predominantly what is called a wisdom teacher, that he taught in parables, almost like Buddhist koans, and his primary focus was on the inner transformation of self. I think if Jesus were alive today, that he would have just as much to critique about conservatives as he would liberals. So wherever you find yourself on that perspective, if you're a part of the well, you probably lean more liberal and progressive in those values. That Remember that our views of Jesus change and evolve. But instead of finding a Jesus that would critique the other, finding a Jesus and saying, how might he critique me? And one of the the ways I think Jesus might critique us as people who might be a little more progressive, might lean towards the prophetic message of Jesus, might be this message that Cynthia Berzot teaches where it's like, well, actually, it's not about always just getting everything right. It's about living in a way that is more right, that bears good fruit. So back to our text for today. And Jesus told his parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I've come looking for this fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? Interesting words there. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year. Until I dig around it, put manure on it. If it bears more fruit next year, well and good. But if not, 
you can cut it down. What does it mean to bear fruit? I think that's a question worthy of being asked over and over in our lives. It might look different from you to me based on our personality, based on our roles, based on the season that we live, what it means to bear good fruit. But I love drawing from Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. At least in its more simplistic forms, this is what it means to bear good fruit. We did a whole sermon series on this as sort of a post-COVID. What did we learn from our season in a global pandemic? Of course, we're still in the midst of that, and, and certain things are kind of resurfacing that are causing some caution. But what did we learn in the very beginning stages? How did it test these sort of fruits in our lives? In fact, Jesus says, you will know people by the fruit that they bear. It's interesting to me how often certain religious folks, they focus on what has come to be known as orthodoxy. Do you believe the right things? That, that's the essential thing. Where Jesus seems to focus on, well, you know, there's a lot of things to believe and there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of things that are going to change and shift. But what kind of fruit do you bear? How do you love? How do you love your neighbor? How do you love the people you don't like? And he would tell these parables of the Good Samaritan, right? And, and the woman at the well as he encounters these kinds of people that were sort of outcasts and marginalized and people... So who are those kinds of people in your life? Because I guarantee if you live in the 21st century in the United States of America, there's people around you that are hard to love. This is what it means to bear good fruit. What you do with your life matters. How you live matters. Sure, what happens when we die is an important question, but it's not the question. Jesus consistently invited us to bear good fruit here and now, to live a transformed life here and now. What you do with your life matters. I want to invite you at this time to watch a short video of me. This is a video of a couple who in 1978 set out with this somewhat vague vision and not sure how they were going to arrive, only having, having a desire to bear good fruit and to help people who were suffering. So let's go ahead and watch that together. Almost 40 years ago, I took my first trip from Lausanne, Switzerland by train to Italy to look at ships. I listed some of the things that I didn't know or that I'd heard. Things like, you can't do that. It's way too expensive. I didn't know where we would find a crew. In fact, I didn't know what I didn't know. I was 32, that's awfully young. Almost 40 years ago, God took a huge risk. I could say that it all started with a hurricane or reading a book about the famous SS Hope. I could say it started with meeting Mother Teresa or with the birth of our special needs son, John Paul. Or I could say it began with my parents' simple way with grace and mercy and dignity with their small town helping hands. 
I could say all of those things about the very beginning of the idea that became Mercy Ships, and they'd all be true. Mercy Ships is a unique organization because it is bringing services to countries that would otherwise never be able to access those services. The millions of people who either physically or financially do not have access to health care are staggering. We just see people that need help. You realize that they have no way of getting help. And I want them to know that they're loved. After the rejection and the ridicule and the hard lives that they've had up until this point, then to have a ward full of nurses and the other ship staff, people just pour out so much love on them. Love does make a difference. People say to me, well, there's all these millions. How, how do you think you can change that? And we can change the individuals one life at a time. Bringing this hospital ship in it's a state-of-the-art platform. Surgeons, nurses, professionals from all over the world offering this free of charge at the highest standards is unique. If you talk to any of the government leaders, as I have, they will tell you how beneficial Mercy Ships has been, not only for their people, but also in terms of a lasting impact. We're working hard here to leave a legacy of improved health care. Mercy Ships is particularly good at providing not just training, but training with an imbued sense of needing to pass on the training. We can work together and do things together that we can never do by ourselves. What a story, right? Perhaps you have a dream, however big, whatever that looks like for your life, but you don't know all of the steps. In your mind, you haven't taken the first step because you don't know the 10th step. And, and this is what faith is about, is saying, something is calling me. Something is drawing me to do this particular thing. And it starts usually with a desire, a yearning in our heart that is a yearning that's really, I think, rooted in the Spirit of God within us. And that yearning can take all kinds of different forms or shapes, depending on maybe it's where we live. We want to live this kind of life. Maybe it's a call into ministry of sorts. Maybe it's a call to live a different kind of way that was a radical subversion to the sort of consumeristic culture that we have today. Whatever that is, I hope we take a moment to kind of affirm that today to say yeah i i want to jump into that but for many of us for most of us we might not have that sense of a big call to move to shift but the question might be this rooted in today where we are called to be bear good fruit we bear good fruit every time we decide to take moments to respond instead of quickly react with anger or frustration Every time we decide to offer forgiveness instead of holding on to resentment or bitterness, letting it take root in our lives. Every time we volunteer to watch our grandkids 
every time we make our kids a priority, we are bearing good fruit. Every time we show up early to church to help serve and to help with children's ministry and to help set up, uh, shout out to Pastor Ryan. I know he can always use more help. I know what it's like to start a, a young uh, church plant, right? Those are ways of developing a community that bears good fruit. Every time we recognize that we lose our temper with our spouse, we go to them and we say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Every time we decide to investigate where our clothes are and food and how our transportation, how we can limit and live more sustainable ways. These are ways that we all together bear good fruit. While few might feel called to do incredible things like the mercy ships or start a charitable organization, and I want to affirm that and say that it could be you, but most of us are called in very small ways, and it often starts in small ways to bear good fruit in our family, in the relationship. So the question that I want to leave us here today is, where am I already planted? And what fruit do I feel invited to bear? See, Jesus makes it clear. We are called to bear fruit. Otherwise, we're just wasting the soil. Our lives are not meant to be wasted. They're not meant to be lived only for ourselves. In fact, we actually know this psychology tells us that we're more happy when we live for something that's beyond us, that we serve other people, we help other people. So, where you are already planted, where do you feel invited to bear more fruit? What you do with your life matters. Let's pray. Creator, you sustain us in every moment, in every time, at every place. For those who feel called to uproot themselves, perhaps begin a new job, perhaps a call to move to a new city, perhaps taking on new family, new relationships, we ask for your courage to take those next steps. For those of us who are already planted in a particular place, help us to see all the ways that we can bear more fruit. Help us hear your spirit as it guides us into greater love compassion and openness to help others. Help us to see the needs in our community and to realize that what we have and what we do with our lives matter. How we live matters. We are called. Help us through your spirit. We pray. Amen.